You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to America's Web Radio and the Doctor's Lounge. My name is Dr. Scott Barber, and I'm going to be uh, leading you through our conversation today. We've got a lot to talk about. There's a lot going on regarding healthcare that I think everybody is well aware of. The Wuhan coronavirus outbreak is moving, moving along and is having tremendous impact on our country, medical impact and economic impact. And I want to spend some time discussing that today. I've got a lot of interesting information that, uh, I think will calm people down somewhat. And we'll give us some food for thought on the perspective of how we're handling this outbreak. I know that my investigation into the numbers and what's happening have calmed me down. And my concern now is that our cure is going to be much worse than the disease. The quarantine lockdown that is getting worse and worse every day is causing significant economic damage and is putting a lot of people in jeopardy, the inability for our economy to run and for people to make money and go on with their lives is going to have serious impact on a lot of people. And I would implore everybody to band together and help one another. This is an opportunity for us to to really care for one another and help help each other get through this very difficult time. I am confident that this will end soon. And so everybody just needs to stay positive. I know in my own household, there's a lot of tension and nervousness, and there's a lot of snapping, uh, both at work and at my house. And we need to give each other a little bit more leeway because we're all under a lot of stress right now. Wait a second. That's not the barber way. <laughs> so... I'm generally a ha- the glass is half full kind of guy, and so most of my uh, show today is going to be talking about the half full stuff, and I also want to uh, help you guys get a perspective on what exactly is happening. Obviously, in medical school, we had a lot of education on infectious diseases, including viruses. I'm very familiar with coronavirus uh, and other upper respiratory tract infections. And I would like to give you a little bit of that perspective from from my view. Now, I don't want to do all coronavirus. I know that that's happening on a lot of other shows, and it's pretty much nonstop. If you turn on the TV, you'll get all the coronavirus you can handle. I'm going to spend some time talking about that, but I also want to talk about our main issue, which is healthcare in this country. And once we get past this pandemic and things start to get back to normal, our healthcare is going to be a major political issue in the coming months and years. Unfortunately, we have been moving steadily towards more government control in our healthcare system, which has caused the cost of our healthcare to go up, the quality to go down, the access to go down, and the innovation to go down. And one of the major topics we like to discuss on this show is how do we improve our healthcare? And when we talk about healthcare, the major issues that we know about or that we care about are access, 
cost, quality, and innovation. And we've talked about this a lot on this show. And we've been somewhat superficial in our analysis. And I want to go in-depth in understanding how each of those things is affected by the policies that we implement. Now, in the coming weeks, I'm going to have other people on the show that are involved in medicine, other doctors, and we're going to get their perspectives. And what we want to do is get away from all of the policy wonks and the people who look at statistics and models of how they think healthcare works and discuss it from people who are on the ground. What I'm going to be talking about on this show are primarily my personal experiences, what I've seen on the ground in terms of what works and what doesn't work, and hopefully give you guys some insight so that you can make informed decisions when election time comes up. Because it's going to be very important that we move our health care away from socialized medicine, which is failing around the world, and more towards free market solutions. Now, one of the things that we have to talk about in healthcare is there are no magic bullets. When I was going through my medical school training and my residency training, I obviously was much younger, I was idealistic, and I wanted to come up with solutions that solved everybody's problems. And when people look at healthcare, they understand that not all problems in healthcare are resolvable. There are people who have terminal cancers. I have a friend whose son right now is 18 years old and, and suffering and fighting for his life against a terminal brain cancer. Um, we have a lot of uh, difficult situations. And when people try to, to put together healthcare reform, sometimes they use a perfect scenario as their guide, and that's just simply not possible. And let me just give you an example. When I was in my residency at the University of Miami, one of the busiest trauma centers in the world, we saw a lot of trauma. And I, I would argue that I've seen everything that could possibly happen to the human body from shark attacks to barracuda attacks and boating accidents and car accidents and uh, gunshot wounds. In every manner of trauma, I've seen people go through wood chippers. And some of this stuff can be pretty intense and pretty shocking. But after you work in it for a while, you become somewhat, we used to call it getting tough. I got to a point where I could see things that used to make me want to pass out or throw up, and I could internalize that stuff and focus on the job at hand, which is very important when you're a doctor. One of the things that patients do not benefit from when you're taking care of them, especially in an orthopedic situation, is being tentative. If that joint is dislocated, you don't want to be tentative about locating it. You want to get get it done. So anyway, it was a time in my life where I felt I was pretty tough, that I was used to seeing a lot of traumatic things. And anybody who's been to the University of Miami hospital system knows it's like a little city. There are multiple hospitals there, the main facility. There's Bascom Palmer, which is the Eye Institute across the way. There's Cedar sinai which is a private hospital across the street. The VA is across the street as well. So it's like a little medical city, and there's a lot going on. And there are a lot of people that you see on a daily basis. And I remember there was one particular patient who was a schizophrenic, 
who would commonly be seen walking around the halls, and he had a basal cell carcinoma, a, basically a cancerous tumor that was eating away the middle of his face. He had no nose, no upper jaw, and there was basically a nasty hole looking right into the middle of his face. And even though I was really tough at the time, I'd come around the corner and see him with maggots and little flies sort of buzzing around his wound on his face, and it shocked me to my core. It was a really frightening scene. Well, they had a very talented oral maxillofacial program down there, and the doctors in that department got together and agreed to fix this patient's face at no charge to the patient. And when the patient was presented with this option, he declined it. And I remember thinking to myself, how is it possible that this poor man was afflicted with a cancer that's eating away his face and also was afflicted with schizophrenia, which prevented him from being willing to undergo a procedure to reconstruct his face and take care of this problem? And it was part of the larger lesson that we've had many times in healthcare and that we use in the business, we will always make the statement, there's always going to be somebody living under a bridge, no matter how hard we try to to resolve homelessness and any other problem. There are always going to be difficulties with people falling through the cracks. And that's why whenever we come up with solutions, we have to make sure that we don't let the perfect trying to strive for perfection, get us away from the most beneficial situation. And so that perspective is the one that I take in healthcare. And my perception, my experience tells me that what we want in a healthcare system is we want to provide the highest quality at the lowest cost to the most people. And then that way, the vulnerable among us will be the smallest population, and then we can get together as a society and use government resources to care for those people. We have a situation right now with the coronavirus outbreak that requires government intervention, and so there is a role for government. But we need to get a lot more of our health care system back on a free market. When we're talking about cost in healthcare, we simply need to look at the numbers. People have ideas about how the government works and how free markets work, and cost is a major issue. And we'll see advocates for socialized medicine commonly talking about the expenditures per patient in other countries versus the expenditures per patient in our country and try to make that some sort of argument which which supports the implementation of socialized medicine. But if we simply look at places like Italy, where older folks are told to just stay away from the hospital because their system is overrun, that would tell me that that system is not the one that we want to emulate. In our country, no matter what your age or condition, you can seek out medical care, and our system is designed to treat you, even with all the flaws that it has. But it could be even better if we were to open up free markets. Now, in economics, we all understand the term supply and demand, that demand 
always leads a free market to meet supply, and supply tries to produce exactly the right amount of stuff that intersects the demand curve. So if we supply too much, the demand for something will go down. The, the less rare something is, the more people want it. If the resource is scarce, like milk and eggs now, the demand for it goes up. Apparently, toilet paper is in great demand right now as well. What we want to do is implement these free market forces into our healthcare system because those free market forces help us develop innovation and quality and access. And at the same time, it keeps the cost down to as low as possible. Now, a lot of people don't realize that in our country, we don't really have a pure free market system for the most part. Our government penetration in the areas of Medicare and Medicaid and TRICARE, which is for our military folks, um, SCHIP, which is for children, um, and the, the significant regulations that we have on health insurance, we have a tremendous amount of government control that is artificially keeping costs up high. People are aware that with the health insurance system, there's really just the big, big ones that we know about. There's Aetna, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Humana, Cigna. These insurance companies pretty much control the market. And because they control the market and because we have so few choices, they're able to artificially keep our premiums and our deductibles high. And established relationships use up the money, and so we end up spending our resources on things that don't necessarily benefit us directly. When I was a young person, I needed to get some health insurance because my father taught me that I should never go one day of my life without health insurance, and he made sure that as soon as I graduated from college that I purchased my own health insurance. And so I was able to buy a catastrophic plan. It was very cheap. But it covered me in case I got cancer or I got hit by a bus. But it was not useful for simple things. I was a rugby player back in the day, and I would get cut on my forehead or, or my face and need to go get some stitches. And I was limited in my options, but I was able to get the care that I needed. As I got older and 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 became a father and had a family, I've wanted to have more expansive type coverage. It's been more costly, but I'm in a situation where I make more money than I did when I was young. And so I was able to get a healthcare plan that was tailored to my needs. Now, those that opportunity has gone away with the implementation of Obamacare. We have a one-size-fits-all program where each of these insurance companies implements ostensibly the same plan. We know them as the gold, silver, and bronze plans of Obamacare, but they basically render the exact same services to every single patient, even though the needs of patients are different. People who are old have different needs than people who are young. And so if we accept this premise that government rationing is not a good way to distribute our health care, and that free markets are better, we can get into some of my experiences that really illustrate this. Now, when I see patients in orthopedics, they commonly have pain with tendons and joints and things of that nature. And one of the most common 
treatments that we render in an office setting is some type of injection, either a steroid shot or a platelet-rich plasma injection into a joint or tendon or a Toradol shot. Injections are a mainstay of orthopedic treatment. And over the course of a week, we give hundreds and hundreds of these shots. And they're beneficial to patients. And I'm able to see who needs them and who doesn't need them. Well, with government payers, they're very restrictive. And so we have always had to call Medicare to get approval to give an injection to a patient who's Medicare. And in years past, I would simply ignore that. If somebody was a Medicare patient, I would just give them the shot. I'd forego the call because that would be hours of my time and it's practically impossible, which, by the way, the government understands. And that's why they implement it, because it's a method of rationing care. Now, our health insurance companies like Blue Cross Blue Shield demand that we call and get what we call a peer-to-peer, meaning I have to call the insurance company. I have to wait online for quite some time. Sometimes I'll have to call back at another time, speak to a doctor who's employed by the insurance company, and get permission to give a steroid shot. Well, this is just practically untenable. It makes it impossible to do, and and it's costly to me as well because I have to have staff that reach out to these insurance companies, and it takes my time away from actually seeing patients. And so in my situation, I have elected to forego those those situations, and I'll simply give the steroid shots as I see fit, and I'll accept the fact that I'm not going to get paid by the insurance company. Now, not everybody is able to do that or in a position to do that. I fortunately have gotten to a place in my career with my practice where I have the ability to do these things. Um, <clears throat> when you look at the way that a government bureaucracy works, and I tend to go back to look at my experiences at the Veterans Administration. We've talked about this before on the show, that there are roughly 150 medical schools across the country, and they tend to be aligned with 150 or so Veterans Administration hospitals. And it's a very symbiotic relationship where doctors in training can go to the Veterans Administration and gain experience. And in turn, the Veterans Hospitals can get medical care that is free, ostensibly, But the problem is the VA is a top-down, government-run bureaucracy, and they run their healthcare like a bureaucracy. And so we are able to to see, as doctors, how that works and how actually it doesn't work. I told the story on a past show about when I was working in the orthopedic emergency room. It was an exceptionally busy day. And I needed to get through these patients so that the emergency room would be clear by the time that the person who was coming on call to stay overnight was there. And so I elected to work through lunch. I had so many patients, it just didn't make sense. And my tech, Miguel, agreed to work through his lunch break to help me. And after that, I went home and I didn't see Miguel for two weeks. And then the next time I saw him, I said, hey, where you been? And he said, you remember when we stayed to work through lunch two weeks ago? And I said, yes. And he said, I got suspended for that. And I started laughing at him, and he looked at me with a deadpan face, and he said, no, I'm not kidding. They suspended me for not taking my lunch break. This is how the bureaucracy works. When the Veterans Administration Hospital is putting together their emergency department, they take 
interns and medical doctors that are working across the street at the hospital that are in the residency training, and they put them to work in the emergency room. Well, these doctors are uh, inadequately trained, I would say. Not not that they're poorly trained, but obviously when you're at the beginning of your training, you don't have a lot of experience, and they're still learning how to to be doctors. And so there's this sort of interdependence on different specialists. So if you go into the emergency room and you see the doctor and you say, I hurt my shoulder, one of the first things they'll do is they'll take an x-ray of that shoulder. Now, in a free market hospital where there's a payment for services, the, the amount of that payment is limited by competition, meaning if you charge too much money, there are other places for people to go. And so a free market controls costs. And as we see free markets implemented, costs are always the lowest they can be because there's always somebody out there who's trying to deliver that service so that they can still make a profit, but at the lowest possible cost. And so it puts pressure on providers to figure out ways to do that. Well, that doesn't happen at the Veterans Administration. What they do is the doctor will look at the patient, order that x-ray, and then when they go to look at that x-ray, they can't read it. They can't tell if the shoulder is located or not located. They can't really understand anything that's going on in that x-ray because they're not trained to do it. So what they do is they call an orthopedic consult simply to come in and confirm that the shoulder has some sort of pathology. Well, as an orthopedic resident, I'm across the street, maybe in a, sh a surgery that's going to take me three hours. And so by the time I'm able to get free and be able to walk across the street and go look at that x-ray, it could be three, four, five, six hours, depending on how busy I was. And this happened all the time. I would say the vast majority of the number of x-rays that I was called to come look at for a dislocated shoulder eventually ended up being a normal shoulder. And I can remember it got so frustrating for me that one time I was called to the hospital at three o'clock in the morning for a shoulder dislocation. I got out of bed. I got, and listen, I was on call about every third night at the time. So the opportunity for me to sleep in my own bed was pretty valuable and very awesome. And I really relished it. So to have to be woken up at three o'clock in the morning, get in the car, drive down to the hospital to go look at this shoulder x-ray that turned out to be normal. And I was so frustrated. I pulled that film off off the reading board, I went up and I said, where's the doctor who consulted me? And I was told that they their shift had ended and that they had gone home. And so I got the address of this guy. I hopped in my car and I drove to his house. And at three o'clock in the morning, I started pounding on his front door until he opened it. And he opened the door and I said, you and I are going to learn how to read shoulder x-rays tonight. Because I was just so frustrated with being called to review these negative x-rays that really should have been simple stuff. Now, you may say, well, you know, that's a unique situation and, you know, that was just your experience. I'm here to tell you I worked in VAs for 10 years from coast to coast in the middle of the country, and they all function the same way. This, this inefficiency and these problems lead to a decrease in access because the top-down, government-run, command-and-control style of medicine does not work because the people that are implementing policy simply do not understand medicine and they don't understand what's important and what's not important. And so they tend to focus resources on things that are unimportant 
and they don't put resources to things that are important. And what happens over time is you lose quality providers because they simply don't want to participate in that. They say to themselves, listen, if I'm not going to get paid for something, then I'm not going to do it. And unless that, well, even if it is a significant service, it tends to just go away. And when people go to the hospital, I'm always amazed when people say, oh, I've gone to the VA and I've gotten amazing care. And I'm always saying to patients, how would you know? I mean, you may have gotten nice care, meaning people greeted you and were friendly to you. That's that's individual interaction. But whether or not you got quality health care, you would have no idea because you don't understand the medicine. and You don't know what's possible. And I can tell you from the front lines, from being in hospitals that were free market hospitals that were, God forbid, trying to make a profit, they were able to deliver high quality health care at the lowest price. And every time I worked at a VA or a county hospital where there was a lot of government control, you saw inefficiency and poor health care and lack of access. And the reason that you have lack of access is because there's no motivation and there's no discipline of failure. The discipline of failure in a free market is one of the most important things that we see. If I were to be a bridge builder, and I was to tout myself as a great bridge builder, I would then be asked to go out and build bridges. I would put these bridges together, and if they collapsed, I'd get in big trouble, and pretty soon nobody would want me to build those bridges. That's the discipline of failure. When the government does it, they go out, they charge a ton of money to build a bridge, the bridge collapses, there are no consequences to that, and they take even more money, and they go and they try to build the bridge again, and what you end up with is these big boondoggles where you spend a lot of time with no bridges, and then the bridges that do get built are unreliable. This is the same thing that happens in our healthcare system. When I was operating in residency, I need a lot of support staff in order to do my operations, and when I was working in a system that was penetrated by top-down government control, it was very inefficient. And this is in contrast to free market healthcare that I work in today. And when we come back from this break, I'm going to give you some examples of how free market solutions are going to create better access than government-run solutions. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom 
and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, everybody, to America's Web Radio and the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and today we are talking healthcare. We're talking specifically about access to healthcare and how free market medicine allows better access to healthcare for patients than government-run healthcare. And I'm trying to give you some examples of what I've seen on the front lines about what works and what doesn't work. Now, one of the things that people have to understand when they talk about free healthcare there's no such thing as free health care. I hope everybody listening to this show understands that nothing is free, meaning you somebody is always paying for it. Nobody does anything for free. And if the government does it, they are taking money from people and they are spending it on other people, which according to Milton Friedman, we have learned that that is the worst p- way to spend money, right? When other people are spending other people's money on other people, that's the worst, right? Cost doesn't matter and quality doesn't matter. When people spend their own money on themselves, that's the best way to spend money, meaning cost will matter and quality will matter. And we have seen that in healthcare, uh, just like any other economic situation. So when a, when you're in a free market situation, like at Barber Orthopedics, my name is on the door, it's called Barber Orthopedics, and I spend every waking minute trying to figure out how to deliver better service and how to accommodate patients who are unhappy. And believe it or not, as hard as I try, we see uh, thousands of patients every month. And believe it or not, there are one or two that are dissatisfied with something. And I spend every minute trying to figure out how to get that number down to zero. Because of that, I try to hire people who are high quality, meaning they have skills, not just technical skills, but social skills, that they have a good work ethic, that they're able to understand that our patients, I demand that they are treated like customers, meaning that, you know, the customer is always right. When I was having problems with too many patients not getting the phone answered on the first couple of rings, I created a call center and I hired people to manage that call center. That in and of itself developed problems. We had to have people in there who were administrative, meaning they could give directions and that sort of information. And then I needed somebody with clinical knowledge so that they could answer questions about their medical care. And this thing evolved based on supply and demand. As demand rose, I created a supply and I've had to figure out a way to maintain quality, keep the cost down, and yet I still have to be profitable. And I know a lot of people, when they talk about healthcare, don't want to hear that term profitable. But with my profits, I pay over 130 employees a nice salary, nice enough that they don't want to leave because I demand that I have good people there. So 
there is going to always be a cost associated with anything we do, including healthcare. The question is, how do we keep that cost down? And we'll talk about that on another show, but today we're talking about access. And I just want you to imagine when I'm sitting in the operating room, I'm focused on doing the surgery and I have an assistant who helps me with retractors and suction and there's, there's a, a, a ballet that goes on there that takes time to develop. And I work with an assistant who understands me when I get frustrated or when I get nasty. They, they know that that's just my personality and they, they go with it. They support me. People understand I like to listen to eighties rock music, which keeps me in my happy place and keeps me in the zone. We have anesthesiologists who have to keep the patient asleep and who are also responsible for waking the patients up and making sure that their pain is well controlled when they wake up. We have circulators who are able to pass equipment from the non-sterile world back into the sterile world so that we can keep this zone of sterility around the patient, and yet I can still get equipment. Now, when I was working in a government-run system, that did not exist. Now, I had an anesthesiologist, obviously. They were training, so typically they were relatively inexperienced, and so there were problems with that, meaning... An inexperienced anesthesiologist doesn't know how to give exactly the right anesthetic. And so patients, you might do a surgery that lasts 20 minutes, but they'll be asleep for an hour because they didn't titrate the medicine correctly. So there's important nuance there that's what we call quality of medicine. Now, nobody was in danger of any kind of injury or illness from this. It was simply a matter of I wasn't allowed to leave the room until the patient was awake. So if I was done in 20 minutes and the patient didn't wake up for an hour, that means I had to sit there for 40 minutes just twiddling my thumbs. So there's important activity that's going along. And when I was doing these things, being the entrepreneurial person that I was, I used to figure out ways to solve it. Meaning, if I was doing an operation and I needed a particular implant, I would say to my circulator, I need a certain kind of anchor. They would then tell the circulator, Dr. Barber needs this certain kind of anchor. The circulator would then call somebody out in the core, who we always used to joke when I was in residency, was always on their union break, not available. They would call out to that person, and then that person would show up in like half an hour. I'm like, where have you been? I called you like half an hour ago. They didn't say this, but I always knew, well, I was on my union break. They had no real incentive to come running, so they came when it was convenient. I would say, I need this anchor. They may go down to the core and disappear for an hour and then come back and say something like, what was that thing you needed again? I couldn't find it. It wasn't long that I was in that environment where I quickly learned I'm doing the operation. If I needed something, I would take my gown off and I would run down to the core get the equipment that I needed. I would bring it back up to the operating room. I would then re-scrub, get back into the operating room, and I would continue with the surgery. The reason that this would happen is there's no discipline of failure. There's no management of the quality of the care. Uh, there's no concern about cost. So these people that are working in the operating room are following policies and procedures that they feel works for them and is not necessarily geared towards the bottom line because you don't have people in the command and control situation that understand what's important and what's not important. And let me give you an example. When I evaluate my barber orthopedics 
surgery, I have lots of things that matter to me. For example, how much pain is the patient in when they wake up? A lot of people don't think about this, but that was something that took me a really long time to learn. How do you control postoperative pain? People are very different. Sometimes you can give morphine and it works, but not everybody. Sometimes you need to give people a different kind of pain medicine. But to really control pain, you have to do it on purpose. You have to pay attention. Now, over the years, I've learned to develop what we call the cocktail, which is a mixture of an anesthetic, morphine, and a medicine called Toradol, which is really effective at alleviating postoperative pain. But when I first got out into private practice, I would do operations and I would go into the recovery room and I would see some of my patients that were in pain. And it was very anxiety provoking for me. A lot of times I would have to leave the post-op recovery area until the nurses were able to give enough medicine to get the patient's pain under control. And then I would come in to talk to them. Well, that was poor customer service on my part. I needed to figure out a way to control that pain. And so I studied, I talked to friends, I tried different things, trial and error, and eventually came up with the cocktail. And I would argue that a lot of people, nurses will bring their family members to me uh, because they have seen how people under my care wake up in the recovery room relatively pain-free compared to other patients undergoing similar type procedures. And this has to do with a free market, a competition between providers trying to deliver the best possible service. Well, I'm here to tell you that that does not take place in a government-run system. When you're the only game in town, your government health care, and your patients are showing up, you don't necessarily have an incentive to manage their pain effectively because once you finish the surgery, that patient's then going to go to a recovery room and the doctor really doesn't, the doctor who performed the surgery is not really obligated to go to the recovery room and, and talk about it. They have anesthesiologists that are there and nurses that are there that will give medicines and eventually get things under control. But the onus is not on the surgeon necessarily who provide that surgery. And I can tell you from direct observation that when there is not a direct incentive for that doctor, meaning in my situation, it's called barber orthopedics. So when they wake up and they're in pain, they don't think of it as the hospital. They think of it as barber orthopedics. I am incentivized to make sure that those patients do not wake up in pain. But if you're simply working at a hospital and you wake up and you're in pain, who are you going to complain to? And as the government penetration is getting more and more, we are seeing hospitals close down, particularly in rural areas, and we are seeing consolidations into these big mega hospitals that make access really, really difficult. And we haven't even really seen the nadir yet. This is getting worse, worse, and worse. And unless we change directions, it's going to get awful, and we eventually are going to be at the VA. What we want to do is create a situation where healthcare will continue to maintain access, low cost, high quality, and innovation. Now, the cost of healthcare also, when it's managed in a command and control situation, is inefficient and ineffective. And so these costs go up, which affect access because the bureaucracy only knows one way to control cost, and that's access. So when a bureaucracy sees costs going up, their first instinct is to ration care, meaning they're going to put up more roadblocks 
so that they do less surgery, so that they end up spending less money. And let me just explain how that happens. I also have to confess that I was part of the problem for a very long time. When I came out of my training, initially I opened up my practice and the vast majority of my operations were carried out at the hospital. Now, I had no financial interest in the hospital and I wasn't paying anything for the operating room or the implants that were going into the patient. And so I was in a situation where money was no object. I was spending other people's money on basically myself. I considered my patients myself. So cost was totally irrelevant and quality really mattered. So everything I did was always the Rolls Royce. So device manufacturers who sell us total joints and screws and plates and implants and all the things that we use in medicine, they took advantage of this scenario for decades, meaning they would go to the doctors, convince the doctors that their products were very important and necessary and get the doctor what we would call on the hook. And I admit I have a lot of implants that I like and dislike, and I never really gave cost a thought. The manufacturers then go to the hospital and the surgery and say, hey, the doctor wants this implant and it costs $10,000. The command and control bureaucracy at the hospital has no idea what the implant is. They don't know what it does. And so they simply paid the money because the hospital was spending other people's money on other people. Cost didn't matter and quality didn't matter. And for that reason, the Device manufacturers that were selling these implants took advantage of that, and they made a lot of money over the last bunch of decades. The hospital systems eventually understood as consolidation happened and they had more control that they considered the doctors to be rogue, meaning when the doctors go and make decisions that are in the patient's best interest, sometimes those decisions cost the hospital a lot of money. And so what they wanted to do was to be able to ration the care. And the only way that they were able to do that would be to employ the doctors and make the doctors accountable to the hospital and not accountable to the patients. And so that's what's been going on with this desire for proponents of socialized medicine to eliminate private practices, to drive doctors out of business. And they were all in cahoots on this, the insurance companies, the government. This was a design plan to drive doctors out of business by decreasing reimbursement to the point where a doctor could no longer afford to pay their employees, pay their electric bill, pay their rent, buy supplies. They And doctors, I can just tell you, by and large, are not the great greatest businessmen. I had one economics class in my entire life before becoming a physician, and everything I've learned about the business of medicine, I learned very expensively and through the school of hard knocks. But doctors are not typically, not all, but not typically great businessmen. The costs, the reimbursement got so low that we were unable to pay our bills. Doctors went out of business and were forced into employed positions by the hospitals. And so now we have a situation where 53% of doctors are now employed by hospital systems. And now it's hospital systems that make most of the decisions about what implants you use and what procedures you can do and when you can do them. And so access is being denied because hospitals have more control and they're implementing the rationing. 
at Barber Orthopedics, for example, and I don't mean to say that I'm the only private practice out there. It's just one that I know, know intimately. And what I want to share with you are the things that I've seen with my own eyes. These are not think tanks from the Manhattan Institute or, or any of these other think tanks, the Kaiser Foundation. These are not models or thoughts or guesses. This is what I've seen with my own eyes and what makes sense to me and what doesn't make sense to me. One of the things we know is competition matters. Anybody who's played any sports in their life knows if they're the only player at a position, if you're the only quarterback on the team, you don't necessarily show up to practice early. You don't necessarily stay late. You don't run the extra wind sprints. But when coach goes out and gets another quarterback and puts him on the bench and that guy's showing up early and that person is staying after practice and running wind sprints and starting to improve, all of a sudden you're thinking to yourself, I better get my act together. I better pay attention to the details or I might lose my position. Well, that's what happens in competition with everything, including medicine. The reason that I have always been incentivized to learn more procedures, to make my incisions smaller, to make my hospital durations be less, to create wound closures where I didn't need to use stitches because people don't like stitches out, to manage post-operative pain, to get people active in as many, th in as fast as possible to offer as many services to solve the problems that I see. I am incentivized to do that because I want to make a profit. I want to take care of people, but I also want to be able to make a profit with that. And the free market is what keeps me from charging a billion dollars for something, but it incentivizes me to, to offer those services and to innovate and to keep my costs down. That does not happen when you're in an employed position. When you're employed by the hospital and you go out to a waiting room of patients that is going to be, that are going to be there, whether you advertise or not. For example, we all know the Cleveland Clinic and the Mayo Clinic. People go to the Mayo Clinic and go to these big conglomerates because in their mind, they believe that those are epicenters of medicine. If a doctor is employed there, there are certain things that they will pay attention to and certain things that they will not. Now listen. I am not here to tell you that I'm a superior person. What I'm here to tell you is that I'm a person and I behave just like every other person, meaning I am a better doctor in a competitive environment than I am when it's a non-competitive environment. I'm the same person. I still care about people, but there are things that I do differently. And let me give you an example. When I work in Atlanta, which I love, I love Atlanta so much. It's a wonderful big city, great people. There are tons of restaurants. There's lots to do. The schools are awesome. I get to go to church, which is big to me. I love that that it's a very common and normal thing to do to go to church on Sundays. I love me some Atlanta. The most important thing I love about it is there are lots of people, which means there are lots of injuries and lots of variety for me to be professionally satisfied when I do my operations. But when I opened my first practice, which was not successful, where I learned a lot about the business of medicine and about the command and control situation of government and how it controlled medicine. When I learned about the crony capitalist arrangements between hospital systems and insurance companies that undermine doctors, and I went out of business, I went to Oregon, a small town in Oregon, for about 16 months. I had to lick my wounds. I had to basically make some money back, <clears throat> get myself back on my feet. And when I was in Oregon, I was in this town of 16,000 people. 
We were the only orthopedic practice in town. So if you were going to see an orthopedic surgeon, you were coming to my practice. You really had no option. I was forced to do everything because there were no subspecialists to refer to. And I can tell you that I cut corners in ways that I do not cut corners in Atlanta. And let me just give you an example. When people are admitted to the hospital for a variety of different conditions, you have appendicitis or uh, you have some sort of surgery or medical condition that causes you to be bedridden and you're in a hospital, it is very, very common for people to develop shoulder pain and knee pain that is not life-threatening, not limb-threatening. It's just a little uncomfortable, or sometimes it's a lot uncomfortable. But the point is, it's not dangerous. It just has to do with people laying around in bed, and especially older folks who might have a little underlying arthritis will develop these painful conditions. So it is very common in the practice of orthopedic surgery to get consulted on inpatients who are suffering from knee pain or shoulder pain. Now, I've been doing this for a long time, and I can quickly look at the x-rays and CT scans and MRIs if they're available. I can go through the chart, and I can figure out if this is a significant issue. And the vast majority of times, it's not significant. So really what we're talking about here is customer service. So if it's 8 o'clock at night, and I'm in a small town in Oregon, and I know that there's no other doctor you can go see, I say to myself, you know what? I'm going to see this patient in the morning. But in Atlanta where there's a lot of orthopedic surgeons and a lot of competition, when I get consulted at 8 o'clock at night, I'm going right to that patient's bedside. Now, it doesn't matter for their medical care. They're going to be fine. It's just the customer service aspect compels me to do something that I wouldn't do in a non-competitive marketplace. And that is what people have to understand that happens in government-run healthcare. You eliminate all competition and you disincentivize doctors and other healthcare for providers from paying attention to the details that have a massive impact on your medical care. I can give you another example. When I was in private practice starting 20 years ago, patients would come to me with hip pain. And at the time, there wasn't a really large understanding of what we now today call hip arthroscopy, which is a small procedure where you make two small poke holes on the side of the hip. You can stick a camera in there and you can stick little tools in there and you can fix things that are going on. 20 years ago, this was not very well understood. There were not a lot of operations out there, very few people doing it, if any. And I had heard that somebody I trained with was developing this new technique called hip arthroscopy. Well, at the time, I felt I wanted to be the most well-trained orthopedic surgeon, sports medicine doctor, certainly on the planet. And I didn't like the idea that somebody was out there doing something that I couldn't do. And since I knew this person, I called him up on the phone and he was in Pittsburgh at the time. And I flew up to go see him and I spent one day with him. And he showed me, this is how they look. This is how I make my incision. This is how I set it up on the table. This is how I do the procedure. This is what I'm looking at. And I was able to see three or four cases and get an idea about how to do this procedure. Now, I was a very experienced, well-trained arthroscopist, but a hip joint is very different than a shoulder or a knee. There's really no space there. It's a very tight area, and it's relatively deep in the body compared to a knee or a shoulder, and it is technically very, very demanding. And what makes it even more demanding is if you've never done one before. So... I went back to my my practice in Atlanta. I started seeing patients that were 
miserable. I mean, these patients were coming from all over the world, literally. I had people come see me from Japan, from South Africa, finding me on the internet, and they would come, and I started doing this procedure. And I remember how difficult it was. I was taking tables that were designed for other procedures and trying to you know, jury rig them so that I could make it work for a hip arthroscopy. You need to apply traction to the leg in order to create a space there. I was very nervous about how much traction can you do. We, Whenever we do an arthroscopy of a joint, we're infusing fluid into the body to sort of distend the joint so that we can see what we're doing. And there's always an issue with what we call extravasation, meaning if you spend too much time doing the operation and the fluid just keeps extravasating into the body, you can fill the body up with, with fluid and cause problems. There's nerves up by your crotch, basically, that can be compressed by applying this traction. There were so many unknowns, and it was very anxiety-provoking to me. And I was technically learning on the job. Where did I make my portals? How do you do it? How do you get in there? <clears throat> I was incentivized to do this because there were patients that had a need. It didn't exist, and I was trying to deliver a service so that I could grow my practice. I wanted people to be able to go out into the world and say, hey, I met this doctor. He's really great. He's trying to help me solve my problem. Tell your friends, and that's a way I can get more business. Now, fast forward 20 years, I'm really good at this hip arthroscopy. I've been doing it for a long time, but now there are, it's a well-known type of procedure, still technically demanding, but most Big cities will have a few of these surgeons who are able to do this procedure. And that was the innovation that happened because entrepreneurial type doctors were willing to take risks and incur costs. Let me tell you, for 10 years, I would do this procedure. Somebody flying from South Africa on crutches, miserable, suicidal. They're in so much pain. I would fix their hip. They would leave thinking I was the greatest thing since sliced bread and the insurance company would send me back, we're denying payment because you did something that was experimental. I did this for like 10 years. Now, I was happy to do it because I was professionally satisfied and I was helping people, but it was obviously not a financial incentive for me to do this. It was just something I wanted to do to be the best possible orthopedic surgeon I could be. And over time, the practice of hip arthroscopy led manufacturing companies to compete and give me better tools. You know, at first I was taking shoulder instruments and sticking it into the hip, but shoulder instruments are relatively short. Hip instruments are nice and long. They created new devices to help us make these surgeries easier and technically easier to do and safer to do. And now I can bang these operations out in, in 30 minutes to an hour and it's very precise and I'm able to do it. I'm able to reproduce it time after time. This all happened from the free market. Now, fast forward, we've had the passage of the Affordable Care Act around 2010. We've had the consolidation of hospitals. The doctors are no longer independent by and large. We have 53% that are employed by hospitals and the hospitals which are non-medical entities. The people that are the decision makers at the hospital are not necessarily knowledgeable in the medicine they're doing. They are making the decisions. If I was to come to the hospital and say, I'm going to do an experimental procedure using shoulder instruments on a hip that doesn't have a code in the government code book, they would not allow me to do it. 
and it would make it impossible for me and people like me to be able to develop hip arthroscopy today. This limits your access. By stamping down innovation, by preventing people who are on the front lines delivering care from from being able to innovate, your access goes down. This is an enormous thing in medicine. It's one of the things that probably frustrates me the most is when I hear politicians saying that we're the only industrialized nation that doesn't guarantee health care for all of its citizens, it makes me laugh. What exactly does health care mean? If you go to another country and they have a socialized medical system and they don't offer a procedure, how are they offering you health care that's not being offered here? That's ridiculous. And you may say, well, that's just hip arthroscopy. That's not other things. No. I'm giving you an example of something that is commonplace in medicine. One of my favorite examples of this is the premier of Newfoundland, who back at the passage of the Affordable Care Act was a great proponent of socialized medicine. This person had a heart condition that required an operation that was not performed in Canada, and he ended up flying to Miami to have his procedure done. He was confronted by people like me who opposed socialized medicine and said, how can you justify going to Miami to receive your heart surgery when you're up in Canada advocating for socialized medicine? And his response was, this is my health care. I can do what I want. Well, isn't this the way that the elites will always talk about things? The socialized medicine is great for you and me, the peasants, but when the elites get sick and injured, they get to go anywhere they want and get the top quality health care. What we want to do is implement free market solutions that decrease costs to the lowest possible cost they can be, maintain access, maintain quality, and inspire and create the conditions for innovation. That's the health care that we're working for. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that when we come right back. Well, I'm just being told that we only have one break today. I thought we had four breaks, like in times past. And so, unfortunately, we did not get to the coronavirus. I will see you guys in two weeks' time. On Thursday, we'll go over some of this stuff. Hopefully, the issues with the coronavirus will have passed. If it's still around and still causing us problems, I will be sure to update you all, and we will start with that next time. If you want to follow me on Twitter, at Dr. Scott underscore Atlanta, that's at D-R-S-C-O-T-T underscore Atlanta, I will be updating my thoughts and impressions about what's going on with the coronavirus outbreak. Everybody stay safe. Have a great day. I'll see you next time on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.